Hi, this is Benjamin Light. And this is Marco Sparks. And welcome to another episode of Bros Watch PLL2. Today, we have another very special guest. One of the writers and producers of Pretty Little Liars, Joseph Doherty, is with us today. Hi, Joseph. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing great. Great. (laughs) An honor and a privilege to be here. Likewise. Awesome. All right. So, yeah, we've got lots of questions. Uh, We thought we'd start out with just some kind of background stuff and then later on we've got some more episode specific questions for you um i guess the the obvious place to start would be how did you get involved with pretty little liars in the first place i was at the script i i've been staffing as they as they call it for about uh for about 10 years because development had become so difficult uh and time consuming that that i wanted to kind of get back into production and have a daily experience of being on a set and writing scripts so I made myself available to write on other people's shows. Uh, and the only restriction I, I put on myself that was I would, I would only go on shows that I had not worked on something like it before. Mm. So having come from 30 something, which was the anti genre show, <laughs> um, if there was, Oh, well, this is a legal show. I'll do that. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. And Oh, this is a straight out medical show with John Wells and Lydia Woodward off of ER. I'm going to learn something here. <laughs> um, and I think I did like, I was on about five shows that way over the course of a couple of years. And then I was at every pilot season, you get sent a bunch of scripts and you, you go on a bunch of interviews and you look nice and you wear a tie. And one of the scripts was, was for the pilot of Pretty Little Liars. Uh, and again, it was something I hadn't done before and it was cable and I had a lot more fun in cable than I had in broadcast over the past couple of years. Um, I, if my memory is right, I turned the first meeting down. Um, (laughs) and because I had a problem, almost everyone I've talked to who's, who's read the pilot script is out of problem is, is you, is you get to the, is you get to the bar, (laughs) you'll get to, you'll get to Aria and, and Ezra. And, and actually I, I read this script. I, how, how, how do you do this and get away with it? Um, so I said, you know, maybe this isn't for me. Uh, and then they came back a second time and mentioned that Oliver Goldstick was involved. And Oliver is one of those people who I've crossed paths with a couple of times over the years, but we've never worked together. We were struggling playwrights in New York at the same time, but we never met each other. So I went and I had a meeting, which was with Oliver and, and Marlene and Alloy. And they wouldn't let you take the pilot home, but you could sit in the lobby of the, of the, of the production office and watch the pilot. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how I met Brian Holden. He was watching the pilot the same time I was watching. His <laughs> meeting was right. I think his meeting was before mine. So I watched the pilot and lo and behold, the, the scene with Arian Ezra is a lot less gritty on screen than mm-hmm. it was. And then I went in, I talked to Oliver and I talked to Marlene for, for about a half an hour. And, uh, they came back and said, would you like to, would you like to do this? And at the time, it, it was only going to be nine episodes for sure. Mm-hmm. No one really mm-hmm. knew how far it was going to go or what kind of effect it would have. And it was kind of, a, it was a cable deal. So it was, it was a little, the, the timing was right. And I said, let's, let's try it. And nobody knew what was going to happen. But I, I think I know the moment I got the job. It's when I looked at Marley and I said, well, you know, if this were, four boys instead of four girls, it would be a Stephen King novel. <laughs> I think she liked that idea. Because <laughs> um, you had said in, in an MTV interview that you 
when you refer to Stephen King, that the PLO is basically an Alfred Hitchcock adaptation. Well, I guess I want to ask you, is PLO basically an Alfred Hitchcock adaptation of the greatest Stephen King novel ever existed? The Stephen King was always there from the very beginning. And I think Hitchcock showed up during the first season hmm. as, as, hmm. Our sensi- as our sensibilities kicked in. Okay. It's funny that you mentioned the Aria Ezra scene there in the bar. And I wonder maybe it was written differently on page because I know me and Marco used to debate like what what was suggested by the end of that scene? It was like, are they just making out or like, has this relationship gone farther? And um, I don't know, was there maybe like kind of like a, a change up at that time in the, in the production? I don't, you know, I, I, you know, if you, if you talk to Marlene, she'll tell you that basically the network said, go further, go further. Hmm. Uh, what I, my memory of reading the script was it's all, it's pretty gritty mm-hmm. and, and you kind of got the feeling that when you cut away, things were going to continue. Right. Then when I saw the pilot, I realized, well, this is the nicest men's room I've ever been in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I said, Oh, okay. Maybe this is how I think that was my first lesson in the heightened world mm-hmm. that the show has to exist in or else it would be crazy and actionable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's not like a real bar bathroom where it's kind of like disgusting and you'd never want to sit down on a sink in there it's really lovely mm-hmm. yeah it's really and i said okay then this is and, you know and i'm you know i'm sure that was a a, a marley network was a gladder conversation right well that's the nice dream world aspect of, of plo and rosewood because later in season three the premiere aria has her panic attack about mona in the school bathroom and she's sitting in the corner and <laughs> we were just thinking Nothing would compel me to sit on a bathroom floor in this day and age. Nothing. I it's uh it, it's a fantasy aspect I hadn't thought about, but we do lots of things we don't think about. Yeah. Or they <laughs> or they actually we do things unconsciously that have the appearance of thought, and then if they work out, we'll claim them. Exactly. So uh, a while back, I Marlon King mentioned something about on the internet about you guys having to go pitch the season to the network. So I'm kind of curious, what is that process like each I, year? You know, Every show has to do all, all these steps, but I, I don't think there's any two ways to do them. Mm-hmm. For for us, it very quickly evolved into Oliver and Marlene and 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 me and or I. I can never get that straight. Ezra <laughs> made that mistake in the first episode. Um, <laughs> it's usually kind of going over there and talking in very broad terms um, about what the arcs are for mm-hmm. any particular season, and also talking about any kind of special event hook that would please the promo department mm-hmm. and and where we think we're going and, and where we think the relationships are going. It's gotten less formal mm. over the years, but pitching is something that it's a very odd skill. I, I, I can do it. I don't enjoy it. Mar- Marlene is good at it. I'm, I'm good at the detail part of it. Uh, I believe Oliver Goldsick used to be a carny. He's <laughs> just magnificent at, at selling in a pitch meeting. He also, he also reads... He reads all the uh, stage directions uh, when we do a table read. Hmm. It's oh, it's okay. Oliver Goldstick Theater, and it is to remind you that it's an exciting show with exciting visuals. So uh, it's kind of like we all plug into Oliver's enthusiasm, mm-hmm. and then we kind of watch what's going on the other side of the table, what they're reacting to, what they're not reacting to. Okay, interesting. So obviously, you know, we met you and Norman Buckley a few weeks ago. Uh, you kind of mentioned you guys are both film buffs. I know you kind of really like to celebrate working your influences and little fun homages into the show. Do you have any particular favorites or like a favorite little reference you worked in? It's interesting. I think what I've been trying to do is to try and not put really specific quotes in mm-hmm. because I think if the quotes are too specific, then you have to know the setup to get the joke. 
And the perfect place for me is that if you see the reference or you feel the reference, it adds to the depth you get from the scene, but you don't need to know the reference to get what's going on in the scene. There's, I mean, there are a lot of them in shadow play. Um, <laughs> I, I think anytime, anytime you see some, something kind of low and wide with a frame inside of a frame, mm-hmm. that's kind of a reaction to how television is usually shot, which is a little, of course it's changed as television's gotten quite literally bigger in people's houses, but at the same time it's gotten smaller on their iPhones. So mm-hmm. there tends to be a, too many close-ups. Mm-hmm. So I'll always, I, I will like to stay wider. So I don't know about specific references, but I think, you know, uh, whenever you see the four girls together in a scene of mine and they're talking, they usually behave like characters in a Howard Hawks film <laughs> where, where it's about a group dynamic mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and you can follow the scene and it happens very quickly, but you're able to follow it. It's, it's not a pat joke but it's a kind of, almost a pat response on mine now mm-hmm. is if you really want to see the, where the four girls come from when i write is you, you have to watch the the b-25 crew in air force mm-hmm. because it's that kind of breaking up of information at the same time carrying a lot of character weight right i mean there are there are specific quotes in shadow play there are specific quotes all over the place but they're so obscure i can't imagine anyone's mm-hmm. getting a lot of names and stuff. I mean, like Hector Lime. Hector Lime. I just like. I have. We have. We have a debate about names sometimes. Where Elijah sometimes thinks names need to be absolutely kind of kind of correct, and I say no. I just like a lot of concussive consonants. Right. Mm. I want. I want names that I. I, I come from a school where where names are punctuation. Mm-hmm. So so give me Hector Lime and and give me uh, oh God. Barry Maple. Barry Maple, but I only did the Barry part. Okay. I think Brian did the maple. I'm not sure. And I did. Bar- I named Barry Maple. I named the cop Barry just because I wanted you to know that Hannah's mom knew the cop, mm-hmm. not in a biblical sense, but that she, but that she knew him. There are a bunch of names floating around in there. Yeah, and then you've got a prosecuting attorney named Douglas Sirk, <laughs> uh, and a, and a judge whose actual full name is Mark Robeson, although only the uh, only the uh, the M is is on his nameplate. Right. But those are fun. Those are almost Easter egg level. I uh, I think we joked at the start of Allison's trial that if we ever see the uh, the mayor of Rosewood, we want his name to just be Orson Welles. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like that. Actually. Mayor Wells. <laughs> or Mayor Wells or whatever Orson Welles' character name was in The Stranger. We're going to be Mayor Amberson, I guess. Yeah. Amberson, well, the yeah, Ambersons, yeah. Actually, the strangers, the stranger town is a little, it's kind of Rosewoody around the edges. Okay. A lot of clock tower. <laughs> so what is your particular writing process when you sit down to put possibly literally like ink on paper i you know there's the process and there's the process for for doing pll so the two things kind of collide brian was very very succinct in talking about how we were breaking stories mm-hmm. is that that's usually that's that's how it's done there's isn't enough time for one person to go completely through all the steps of breaking an entire story mm. and then blending it together. You need five people who you trust and whose tastes you know to help you put it together in some kind of structural sense. And we all get to a point when we're looking at, you know, index cards on, mm. on a, on a bulletin board and we each say, okay, I know what that scene is. I know what that scene is. I know what that is. I can, I can go in. I can write this. I usually go home and hide. For about, uh, hopefully, uh, five to six days, if mm-hmm. I'm lucky. 
Uh, and in that period, I'm, I still write longhand. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was just going to ask you if you had any writing affectations like that. It is, it's an affectation, but it's a leftover affectation. I think because when I started, the alternative to that was an electric typewriter. Mm, okay. And I found the noise of an IBM Selectric just humming at you, mm. waiting for you to write something was just too intimidating. <laughs> so I went the yellow pad fountain pen route. And uh, as a result, that's kind of, that's what happened to the hard wiring. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's where I stay. It's quiet. I can do it anywhere. And then depending on how much time I've got, how secure I feel about the outline, I'll either type input a day's work or an act worth, or if there's a tremendous crunch and I just have to power through, I'll write the entire script longhand and then go back and type it in. Mm. And that typing becomes the first edit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then I work on it, trying to get it down close to length and bring it back into the room where all the writers read it and you sit down and you get everybody's notes and you take the ones that make sense and you try to try to avoid taking the ones that caught you doing something you didn't want to be doing <laughs> it's uh, it's very it's very fast it's gotten faster over the six years of the show mm. um i i remember having the luxury of like sometimes a week and a half to two weeks to write a first draft mm. and it has become incredibly compressed at this point which I guess goes back to something I said before is that there may be lots of references and lots of crafty Zen-like things that get into a script that may not be 100% conscious. They're yours, mm-hmm. but you're writing so fast that it's you're leaning on your craft and your and, and your knowledge to get through. And also at this point, you're leaning on knowing how these girls breathe mm-hmm. and and what the relationships are between the characters and and what sets are on what stage. I think I think that's fascinating too. Just like you said, for starters, practically like knowing how your actors breathe and their rhythms really helps you to craft the best dialogue for them. But also, I think some of the best writing is the writing where the the artist is a little surprised at what they're saying to themselves or the world. Too. There's a yeah. There's a quote at the end of, of Raymond Carver's book about surviving cancer, where he says that basically after he'd been through this horrendous experience, and he would he realized that his handwriting had changed mm-hmm. a little mm-hmm. bit. He said, he says, it, 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 the words seem to come down the arm of a grateful man. <laughs> and you do get to a point where the best stuff you do is often the stuff you feel the least conscious responsibility for. Mm-hmm. You just kind of were lined up and caught it. And it's, it's, I think it's, it's a great moment for, it's a great moment in any writer's life when you make the transition from, gosh, I'm good to, gosh, that's good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's like, wow, that was pretty good. I'd like that. But yeah, I, I heard somebody the other day talk about, I think it was uh, t- talking about Ray Harryhausen uh, and describing Harryhausen's movies as kind of being beautiful charcoal sketches and that they may not be photorealistic, but, you know, you know, what would you rather have? Uh, something Picasso did on a tablecloth with a piece of charcoal really fast on a Sunday afternoon or some really kind of lame sold out the corner supermarket <laughs> art that's that's photorealistic right I, I speed is terrible but it is not necessarily our enemy it's our reality right what initially led you into writing to begin with i have no idea uh i knew i wanted to be a writer before i knew what a writer was mm-hmm. i'm i'm of a generation where 
the first writer I was aware of that there was a person who was a writer is Rod Serling. Okay. Because he was there. Right. He was a guy in a nice suit and he did it for a living. And I said, oh, okay. And also, it's really liked what was being said. That and at an early age, going to the movies a lot and having a pretty wide hunger for it. I was seeing everything. You'd see the things you're seeing you were for kids and you'd see the other things too. Mm -hmm. Somewhere in there, I think the first movie I ever saw, you have a choice of three. Because I had been, been unable to determine which one came first. <laughs> it's either North by Northwest, Pinocchio, or Have Rocket Will Travel. <laughs> so I guess those three things together form the initial turn me into what I was. I, I didn't know what a writer was, and then I kind of found out as I... And by high school, I was aware of it. In high school, I, I discovered Preston Sturgis. Mm. Okay. And right around there, uh, shortly thereafter, I, not a lot of film credits, but a great playwright, Herb Gardner. Mm -hmm. And I think basically my, my stuff kind of lives in some kind of triangle contained by, by Herb Gardner, Rod Serling, and, uh, and Preston Sturgis. They, they each brought a different thing to the, the way I, I do it. I, I think all three of them represent the same thing, which is, oh, you can do that? Hell. <laughs> then why am I fooling around? I can do, I can do that. I, I, again, it's like, I remember the Sunday afternoon, I saw Sullivan's Travels for the first time. Mm. And, you know, and when that tone shifts and he ends up in the work camp, it's like, I remember viscerally saying, like, you actually can do that. Mm. You actually can be that bold and change your tone. I said, okay, all bets are off. Well, it's kind of cool. In Twilight Zone, that, that was a week-to-week -week kind of thing. Yeah. Serling is somebody who said, basically, I, I'm doing fantasy and science fiction because they won't let me tell socially relevant stories I want to tell in, in a reality context. Mm. And it worked. And it's, yeah, I mean, and we're all just kind of like, we have to remember we are entertainers. Speaking of that, uh, so recently I discovered a little project you used to be involved with called Handwritten Theater. And I yes. was curious, how did that, how did that project come about? That, that came about because of a friend by the name of uh, Lance Anderson, who was really on the ground floor of podcasting. Mm. And he started doing it when nobody knew what it was. And it was some mysterious thing that was kind of radio, but it wasn't radio. But I realized that he, what he had done is he had been able to figure out a way to get directly in contact with the, an audience that wanted to experience his. He's, uh, uh, I guess you'd call him a narrative artist. He's not stand-up. He's a storyteller. And I said, well, let me see what I can do here. And I just wanted to kind of play around with performance and language with absolutely no restrictions whatsoever. And I got together, Lance helped me produce the, the first set. And I got together with a bunch of friends who were actors and we just did these things. And they are, I hope, as amusing as they are self-indulgent. <laughs> um, and they were a lot of fun to do. They were, they were written very quickly with not much rewriting. And they're usually recorded in two takes. Hmm. And I haven't done them in a while. It was a two-year process while I was doing them. But it was, it, was, it was a safety valve, too. Because in television, it's basically, can you do it quicker? Can you do it faster? Said, All right, well, you know what? I'm actually going to write five minutes that aren't about anything. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. kind of, I guess, the, I think what I was really trying for was the feel you get from Harold Pinter's review sketches. Right. That it's like the language, language intense. Uh, so one thing we, we asked Brian about this, and it seems like we'd have to ask anyone uh, involved in the creative process about this with Pretty Little Liars, the, uh, the strawberry patch lane, you kind of, your ideas that, that didn't make, didn't make it, uh, any particular 
favorites there or just like just fun ones that you can think of? That... I'm anything having to do with plastic surgery. <laughs> would, would like one character becoming another one any, or something any, like any Dead Ringer. To have to, you know, to have to explain something uh, or to say that there has been some any of that. Um, mm. uh, listen, I think I, I think I would have sent more things to explain than anybody else. I was. <laughs> I'm usually the guy on the end of the table saying, I what exactly how does that work? Um, plastic surgery, um, I have excessively convenient eavesdropping. Okay. That, that always bothers me. It's like, it's sometimes it's too easy. It's, they tend to, most, most, Strawberry Patch Lane is a very sexual place. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, uh, there's a great deal of, there's a great deal of stuff going on there, and I believe the police are actually more corrupt or mm. less attentive than Rosewood. I'm, it's, I'm sure people are just walking out of each other's houses uh, mm. in, in Strawberry Patch. Mm. Interesting. Because, I mean, there's kind of a the, the rules of the liars are like they don't date each other's boyfriends, you know. Um, but do you ever kind of run into that where you're thinking like, man, I really wish we could do a scene with these characters, but it's just against the rules. I think we're at a point where, where we're examining all of our rules mm-hmm. because one of the things that happen when you do that is that you realize you've got two actors who've never had a scene together. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Why have we kept them apart? Why haven't we done that? I mean, I think Keegan mentioned it when we were doing uh, Shadow Places. The one scene he has with Mr. Fitz, that's the first time those two characters have had a scene together. Right. Mm-hmm. And it took five years. I think it's... One of the best ways to get a scene in your outline is to mention the fact that it's between two characters who've never had a scene together. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's almost like if somebody's on the bench about it, someone's like, oh, I don't know. It's, a, it's, it's, you know, you realize these two people have never been in a room together or a car together and they've never talked together. Hmm. Is it okay? Let's do it. Hmm. And the actors love it too because they're all friends, but they don't get to do scenes together. Interesting. Well, this is fun. The, uh, the plastic surgery thing. I feel like there's like a, a thousand A theories out there right now where, where somebody's either, uh, th- tearing it up or just f- more committed than ever. They're like, well, he only not, said that I to throw everyone it's, off. <laughs> it's, you know, I mean, the plastic surgery thing, it's, there's this, there's this strange bumpy line that runs from, I think the first time masks are seen are the second Halloween episode. I can't remember now. Uh, which kind of like eventually gets you to Hector Lyme, which eventually has to get you in turn to, yeah, well, what if somebody's having a permanent mask done? <laughs> right. Um, it's just that I think plastic surgery will not play a major role. <laughs> it has come, it has come up, but other things have come up too. Okay. I, I've listened when I pitched Aria in an airplane, <laughs> someone at the table dared to look at me like I was a little outside when I says, excuse me. I think an airplane ride at this point in the proceedings, after what we've done with these characters, is completely credible. I love that scene. Yeah. I just, yeah, I wanted to put her someplace. I was, it's like, where can I do this that where we haven't been before? And where can I put her in a kind of jeopardy that she hasn't been in before? So I'll just stick the yoke of an airplane in her hand. <laughs> Yeah, we have some uh, some questions about that episode a little bit later. Okay. But uh, before we get there, Marco, do you have a question? Uh, so, so speaking of Rosewood and Strawberry Patch Lane, though, like when it comes to the the maps of Rosewood, which uh, we had a great fun making and in, in debating and, and contemplating, what is something you think should always be on a map of Rosewood or could be frequently missing from a map of Rosewood? 
the lake, mm-hmm. um, which of course is all bodies of water to all people. <laughs> I think I'm going to start inventing restaurants that we haven't gone to. <laughs> start referring to them too. Um, the greenhouse. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, because that's actually had some important stuff going there, and it's mm-hmm. it's like kind of near Spencer's house. It's it's kind of near. There's we do have kind of a wormhole back behind those two houses. <laughs> yeah. And you either embrace it or you don't embrace it. Right. And every time I think I understand exactly what's going on, um, someone looks out a window and sees something I had no idea they could see. <laughs> I say, wow. I didn't even know this house faced that way. <laughs> the kissing rock should always be on there. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I knew where Paige's house was because I don't know where that swimming pool is. No, that's about all I can think about. But I would like, yeah, I would like to know where the lake is and how big it is. Torch Lake, how yeah. How deep it is. <laughs> well, it seems like there is secrets. lots of bodies of water in, I in think, the area. I think there are a couple of cop cars down there. I think Shelly Winters is tied to a Model T somewhere <laughs> at the bottom of that thing. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah. When we, because Benji's was the best of the maps, and a lot of people were uh, giving him a hard time on, on social media, like, where's Paige's house? <laughs> Yeah, that was the one I forgot to put in. Yeah. I don't know. It's like but you're, when, when you start thinking about there may be no way to logically make complete. And there, I don't think there's a unified field theory mm-hmm. for the show right now. I also figured that Paige probably lives maybe somewhere near Mona in that kind of like other neighborhood area that we just see occasionally. But yeah, Mona's house has moved a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. But the one time you saw the back of Paige's house, it was larger than i think a lot of people thought it was a nice like backyard at the pool when they did their synchronized swimming yeah yes it was that which is actually not on the back lot it's at the warner brothers ranch which is about two stoplights over okay we don't go there much but we do go there but i mean it's it's i as i watch people put together theories i can't say that there are any wrong theories i think there may be an infinite number of rosewoods it just gets Mm -hmm. Well, at a certain point, it, it stops being your rosewood and it becomes the rosewood of the person watching it on their, their large TV or their small phone. Yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. I mean, then then we've gone all the way back to being storytellers around a fire. Mm-hmm. And kind of being in a dialogue with an audience is very strange because it's not really, you know, it's not how I was trained. You know, interactive television to me is you sit there and watch it. Mm-hmm. And I tell you what you see. Mm-hmm. So that the, the way the younger female fans have just basically latched on to the show, not latched on to it, taken possession. Mm-hmm. It is their show. We're just working on it. It's, it belongs to them and they have, and they have needs. Mm-hmm. And we try to, I, my, my concern is that if we, if all we, if the only thing we did was please certain people who are just focused on, on the relationships, it, it would be nothing but breakfast scenes. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they'd like that. <laughs> they say they want it, but I had a, I had an exchange with, with people who were asking for spoilers. And I said, I said, don't you want to be surprised? Mm-hmm. And she said, yes, I want to be surprised, but I want to know first. Yeah. <laughs> and when the show began, we were very concerned about the way the network was promoting it because we thought they were giving things away in the promos that you would never give away in a promo. Mm-hmm. But what happened was it didn't blow the episode. It got people excited to see what came before the scene that was promoted. Mm-hmm. And okay. <laughs> I remember the West Wing 
NBC for the longest time ran these promos, which were, you would think every episode of the West Wing was about what was going on in the situation room. Yeah, it all but, seemed like there was a huge crisis. But uh, yeah, I but, figure you just need to tell people, hey, Patrick McGowan is Charles. That's all you need to know. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's really odd. This is an instance where basically we I, where the series showed up at this place, but I, I I doubt sincerely Marlene King has actually seen an episode of The Prisoner. It's too bad. <laughs> I don't I don't quite understand. I I kind of stumbled on it. I was surprised when I stumbled on it because I was I I like Magoon series, mm. and it never occurred to me it's what we were doing. <laughs> and then I said, well, here's the village and it's controlled. And mm-hmm. wait a minute. Mm-hmm. And you look at you look at the the season finale, and it's really it's it's I think it's the episode's Dance of Death. Mm-hmm. Of the prisoner. Now, if our fans would like to go back and <laughs> revisit the prisoner, I'm down with that. Oh, well, I yeah. think we were we were watching it, and and Benji was asking me about the prisoner because I think Jacob Clifton was some tweeting some stuff about it, and I was loving it. And I said basically, like, if, if all you need is love starts playing now, I'm just gonna have to lay down. <laughs> I just be very happy. It's if we could have. <laughs> that, that that there was a point in our in our in our human history when you could afford to right. do a needle drop of that song right. in a television show. I mean, I'm I'm kind of willing to pl- play around in that area a little bit. <laughs> the, the ones I'd love to do is I'd, I'd love to do the I'd love to do that penultimate episode. I'd love to do that. Is it called Once Upon a Time? It's yeah. the one before Fallout. The with it's, Leo it's McKern. Yeah. Leo McKern and him just locked in. Yeah. From A's, from, A's from the, cradle, the cradle to the grave. Yeah. Yeah. All right, fine. I'll watch a show. <laughs> no, you don't have to. But I, no, I, I, I want to. I, just, of them, so. yeah. I think I read somewhere that Matthew Weiner had to pay out of pocket, like, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars to get 15 seconds of the Beatles at the end of an episode of Mad Men. Like, the network couldn't cover that. <laughs> it was, I'm, I'm surprised that there was actually a quote. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, speaking of other TV shows, are there any others that you like to watch or that kind of fascinate you? Oh, gosh. You know, it's the only. Thing, <laughs> I was worried about this question. Um, I haven't. Re- I haven't. I'm not watching anything on broadcast. There's really nothing much going on on American cable, and I realized the only thing that has kind of become something I watch with any kind of regularity now is Doctor Who, hmm. because it's a, an adventure show about an old man racked with guilt. So <laughs> I fit right. As far as I'm concerned, I fit right into it too. And part of it is basically is I'm completely amazed at the long game that's mm-hmm. being played over there. I mm-hmm. can't conceive of, of what's going on in their minds. I would have liked to have liked um, The Affair okay, because I liked In Treatment so much. Mm-hmm. But I just couldn't find a way into it. Most of it's just personal prejudice on my part. So i got to ask, I know this won't mean anything to Benji, but who is your favorite doctor then? Uh, you never forget your first doctor, right. and that's Tom Baker. Okay. I would love to see a Joseph Doherty version of uh, Peter Capaldi's Doctor. I, there's, uh, you know, so I, I sometimes you look at, you know, and they, sometimes they ask, they're never going to ask an American to write one. Right. And if they did, it wouldn't be me. <laughs> <laughs> I have people, when people ask about Doctor Who don't watch, all I say is it's, it's the perfect show because it's a guy with a time machine who shows up, he walks out the doors of his little time machine, and it's a new genre every week. Yeah. You know? It's a new feature I film. mean, it's to me, it's it's wild strawberries of a time machine. It's yeah, <laughs> it's all this guilt and all this stuff and all this stuff you have to carry around with you. What do you do with it? And a lot of it's about loss. And I just just love the fact that there's an adventure show for kids about loss. Mm-hmm. So we we ask this question to everyone that we talk to. If you had to 
you know, if Pretty Little Liars was like a, a class you were going to take in their summer reading before the new season, are there any particular movies or books uh, that you would just recommend just kind of get a get into the, the mood of the new seasons coming up? You know, the first thing that goes is is Stephen King mm-hmm. and okay. those books with groups of children. Uh, yet Dreamcatcher, which is not. <laughs> not Watch that movie. movie. Not that movie. The books, not the book is so much better, hmm. but it would be very hard not to be. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, the maybe the body hmm. uh, that turned Step into by me. by me would would yeah. maybe that would be the best can opener hmm. for us, and maybe the movie, but more the book. I think I'd, I'd because the the novels let you get inside of people's heads better than a movie can. It just mm-hmm. that's that's the beauty of King is he rem- he remembers what it was like to be a kid. I made a joke to somebody the other day about uh, a PLL time jump, and that would basically be it. It's you know we're as as you know this, uh, the time jump is in the works. Okay. I'm fascinated by it. I can't wait to can't wait to see how that goes. Um, time jumps on TV are are really interesting the way they happen. Mm-hmm. We're gonna try and you know we have uh, I think I've talked to Marlene about this, and again, as we always come back to Stephen King. Hmm. We always come back to the fact that we would resolve the childhood trauma, apparently, mm-hmm. and then we would find that the trauma is still resonating, mm-hmm. and still that there is something left undone, and that's intriguing to to relaunch in that sense. It's what it does is it does turn the series into a, a tremendously long, well, or not so long for Stephen King novel. Mm-hmm. It would be. You know, we would spend six years getting you to this point, and we'll see what we can do on the other side to see if the to see if the grownups can actually survive. Awesome. So we have a lot of uh, episode specific questions here. I guess you yeah. know we we probably would have loved like to for there to be directors or writers commentary on like every single episode, but seriously, because we don't have that, I uh, figured we can. Take the, only, that time. the only commentary you're ever going to hear is about shoes. <laughs> I don't think ever going to let the writers in there do commentary. Well, we've we've always joked that like there should be one of those like like Talking Dead shows after PLL. I think I think the audience would love to hear like like you and like Lucy Hale talk about this particular episode. You know, I mean, it's it's the live tweet personified. We tried to do yeah. it and it didn't it didn't work okay. for the network, but it was a little. I, I think if they had just done a pure version of that, we could have maybe done it. Mm. But yes, there are shows I would do commentary on. There are shows that, that I will. <laughs> this would be one. I. It's there's nothing better than pontificating. <laughs> uh, so Benji, I think you should start with moments later. Okay. Um, so rewatching moments later, um, it really felt like a like a pivotal episode in the series. Is kind of the start of one B. You guys had been off for four months, and there were kind of all these older plot lines. That it's like they're all evolving, moving into new territory. Like a lot happened, like he kind of like secrets revealed, like, you know, Emily comes out, Lucas kind of finally makes his move, Melissa suddenly gets married. Um, can you talk a little bit about like the creative process behind this episode? Like, was there kind of any any idea that like we kind of move forward with these plots or something like that? I think a lot of what powered moments later was the fact that we knew we were going to be off for four months. And at that point in time. No one knew if there would be anybody there mm-hmm. when we came back because we looked at the audience and we looked at the, that at that point, the typical attrition rate and, and, and attention span for a show like this. So we were not, I was not sure 
what we were going to be coming back to. Mm. I think there was an, a need, therefore, to not relaunch, but to make sure that everyone was satisfied that whatever things that had kind of been left as kind of hanging chads or, or, or we want to pay things off. We mm -hmm. wanted you to know you could come back and pay. We were going to pay you off. I think maybe right from the beginning, one of the reasons that the show works is we do want to play as fair as we can. Mm. And if, if we're going to do something, it will pay off. And it was just, it was time to, to shake things up. It's how, it's how you keep a show going is shaking it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just watching this episode. Mona is very suspicious, of course. Um, did Janelle Parrish know at that point that she was A? Or did you guys? We knew. Okay. She's A in the books. Mm -hmm. And I think she had read the books and knew that much. Hmm. But I'm pretty sure Marlene hadn't told her. Okay. Uh, I don't think she actually was told. I, this is an anecdote, and hopefully I'll get it right. Uh, I don't think she was told until fairly deep into season two. Hmm. Uh, and the reason I remember, reason I remember it is I remember, I think, my, I think Leslie Gladder directed the episode, uh, when they drive up the mountain, it's the season two finale, uh, run like a Marcino, I think. Was oh, it? Okay. It's wrong. Maybe. But yeah. it's where, you know, when Mona's is unmasked and, and, mm -hmm. and she goes over the hill and, and, and we, and she sits in that wonderful, okay. In a very specific Norman Bates pose <laughs> at the end of the episode. And I remember, I remember, <laughs> I remember Marlene saying to Janelle, when you when you run across the field she, and you get caught, it's, it's really, really crazy and she's really insane and she's just like incredibly energetic and she's got all this energy just like you were in the greenhouse. And Janelle had to say, that wasn't me then. I didn't <laughs> know it was me. So we had to go back and show her the greenhouse again so they could see how she was. Oh, that's who I am. <laughs> awesome. I, it's, it's, Janelle is just really remarkable. She's just remarkable. She's uh, like all of the girls. There's just, we're at a point now where they trust us and we just like love watching them field it as mm -hmm. we, as we, you know, shag these flag fly balls. Out <laughs> <of them. laughs> um, so moments later is the first time we get a real hint that the alley might be alive with some like classic Allison lines. Like, are, are we still waiting for the shoe to drop about the truth that Allison told to the wrong person at the wrong time? Or can that be inferred from AS for answers? Oh, uh, yeah, season four. Yeah. It's uh, I'm not 100 percent sure. Okay, because mm -hmm. I was I'm sometimes I am trying to say things that can be true in more than one way, mm -hmm. in case one of those two ways doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. Okay, later. So, um, so maybe we have and we haven't at the same time figured yeah, out what that means. It's, I think it's a true statement, but I think when I wrote it. She's referring to something she said to someone the night she got clobbered. Okay. Okay. Um, probably her mom. Okay. Hmm. But I would say that is one viable explanation. She, I, she may be referring to more than one thing. Okay. I just, I'm, I'm nuts about that scene. It's like, I, I, yeah, I love you, it. You don't get a chance to write something like that anywhere else hmm. than to have the girls show up dressed as a candy striper and say, <laughs> did you miss me? <laughs> I love that they uh, brought that back for her final, like, actual return in Grave New World. Oh, the, uh, the perfect line, you know, did you miss me when they finally uh, see her? Other characters said it, too. Mm -hmm. Bill Khan says it at one point. 
it's become this kind of scene. I, at a point, I was saying, so we have to get every single character to say, "Did you miss me?" <laughs> in some context or another, just to screw with people. So the the girls, their their futures and their past both kind of exist in this like Schrodinger's box. <laughs> There's a cat somewhere, yeah. or there's not. <laughs> One thing I was just wondering, watching moments later, um, how did how did A get rid of that tree? Like, did Mona hire a contractor, um, or did she just go out there with a hacksaw? Uh, well, it's not a hacksaw. It looks like a chainsaw. To okay. Me. I was thinking about that. I remember that. I think that's me finally embracing adrenalized hyperreality. Uh, yeah, an adrenalized hyperreality where not only because really, all you have to do is you have just have chop the bark off. Mm. You just that's all you have to do. Yeah. Uh, but this is a character saying, "says I no, I am I can actually do this." Um, okay. I don't know if it's physically possible. I think the trees around it should have been disturbed some more if you want to do that. Mm. But the, I I'm pretty sure that's me kind of really going to the, getting finally showing up at the party with a hot dish. Is <laughs> I'm I'm embracing this now. I mean. I used to be the guy who would start every season by saying, can we just kind of work out that timeline about what <laughs> happened in the backyard? Mm. We, we, can we just kind of like, I'd really like to know what happened. How far away are things? They got back. Who was asleep? And people would just, oh, silly Joe. <laughs> uh, what is he worried about? It's so the trees, the trees kind of a, a representation of A's power there. It's like she, she could have just scratched out the, the name, yeah. but instead it's, that's, that's how powerful she is. I can do this. Hmm. is i can take the whole tree it was obviously yeah it's, it was not about it was not about destroying the carving it was about saying you are out of your league hmm. I, I will burn the forest of your your curiosity hmm. i will i will burn the forest and i will and i will make s'mores <laughs> with the in the fireplace of your fear so how much for so the percentage of the time spent in the writer's room hashing out an episode how much of that is just hashing out logistics of Mona or A's omnipotence as like a cyber ninja or what have you. Very little time is actually given into the, the, the actually it's, it's almost like what would be the scariest thing to do? Mm -hmm. What haven't we done and how much is necessary to explain it? Mm. Because if we, we've done some things that I wouldn't like to try to explain. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I, I see people complain sometimes online, like, why don't the liars close their drapes? Or, And it almost feels like A has demonstrated such power that they must be in a psychological state where it's like, what would be the point? You mm -hmm. know, like A's going to find out. You can evoke Hitchcock. Hitchcock says, why don't they go to the police? It's boring. Right. Yeah. And you don't want them to go to the police. Uh, and for a long time, you couldn't go to the police in this town anyway. Mm-hmm. And I know that, you know, when, when Tanner and Holbrook first showed up in the second half of season three, the whole idea is, and this was my argument was they had to be state cops. Right. Okay, they had yeah. to be because Garrett's homicide happened outside of Rosewood. Mm -hmm. Finally, the state cops would get involved. And the whole idea was to bring in two police officers who are used to normal crime. And this is what I, you know, Welcome I mean, Rosewood. the thing I've, the thing I've tried to do in a memory Tanner, I don't think I've actually succeeded hundred percent was that I really, what the scene I need to write for Tanner is the one where she says, I've got to get over thinking this is a regular town. <laughs> I have got to get over trying to figure this out as if it was figurable. Well, she, she does a little bit of that when there's a scene with Byron where she, she's just like, it amazes me. <laughs> You people are not more curious about some of these things. I think Spencer Spencer needs to sit her down and explain how how it works in Rosewood. Or she Peter Hastings. 
Oh, Peter is it? I mean, like it's 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 what I like, and I think it's the same. I think that's the same episode where she does her full on Columbo mm-hmm. with the girls. Just one more where thing. She literally gets up from the table and starts to move away mm-hmm. and come back. And I know there's sometimes I have to use that character. I mean, like when I say like there's a long scene between her and Toby. I think it's four fourteen where I had to explain why Spencer's bail is going to be revoked and it's okay yeah mrs dealer at the statement and it's about the fact that wilden suppressed it and it has to be done in it's it's almost structured like jeopardy mm. it's all questions <laughs> and it's sometimes it's hard to get <laughs> but i i like her as a character she's she's fantastic if it's a scene i'm remembering because she's it's like she's playing with Toby like he's like he's a ball of yarn and she's yeah. a very smart kitten who knows more than she's letting on. Which is why most of her stuff is questions. When she talks to the girls, it's questions. Is you've never thought about it? Yeah. I guess mm-hmm. girls are different now. Yeah. <laughs> and again, it's like, again, I love this. Yeah, it, it is like, I am amazed at the lack of curiosity. Of Ooh, that scene of her and Hannah on the park bench is, is just a quintessential example. And it's, yeah, it's like, are there, is there a lot of act, Russian mob activity? Yeah. <laughs> I just wonder what would happen if you actually is like that's that's what would happen if you actually brought in a character that was used to actually doing her job, <laughs> and what would she think? Another fun character, Ian. Um, he shows up. Well, he's he'd been around a little bit, but in moments later, you kind of get a little more of him. He's such a sleaze. Um, the, the thing that really stuck out to me was how he shows up. He's like open shirt. You know, it's like you know, you th- tell he just threw a shirt on. Even though he knows he's going to end at their house, he's kind of like showing off like where he's coming from. And he, he has this like weird conversation with Spencer and Melissa where he has to throw in like at the most inappropriate time. Oh, by the way, practice is canceled tomorrow. It's like he has to like like cross those boundaries and like make everything really uncomfortable. Like, how do you get into the mindset of writing a character like that? It's well, you know, the standard stuff is actually is you can't write them evil. Mm. You, you, you have to write them other motivated. Although Ian's got a lot to account for that he never actually accounted for. I think everybody at one point in their life has been sitting in a bar or at a table in a restaurant with someone next to someone and have heard them say the most insanely inappropriate thing. (laughs) And you just look at them and says, was there any connection between your mind and what you just said? (laughs) Or, you know, are you insensitive or are you a sociopath and how can i tell the difference (laughs) and one of the reasons ian is so terrible as a human being as he certainly stands in there is that he has basically interrupted one of the few legitimately emotional moments between these two sisters Mm -hmm. Uh, what i like about it is spencer actually comes in and starts to cry because hannah's been hit by god and i said i just wanted to remind people you know this is her older sister this is how they're supposed to be together, mm-hmm. and they can't. Well, he's like he was always like tearing apart that bond between them. But then he would come in and offer basically to be the bridge, which I thought was the most one of the most insidious factors about Ian too. He's not Ian. Clearly, has somebody's head in a hat box somewhere. <laughs> I mean, he he came to a bad end, but I I'm hard pressed to defend the boy. Yeah. Um. So you get to drop some some big secrets in the episode. Uh, like Fitz, you know, and Emily coming out. Do you do you find these scenes easier or harder to write? Like, does everything flow out because you've been anticipating a version of it for so long? Of certain well, characters? It's, they're they're easier to write because they're about something. Mm-hmm. 
as opposed to the times and where we've all had to do it where literally you have to write a scene in which you can reveal absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so to actually have a scene where the ball moves is great to actually kind of do it. And what happens, it's a school of thought that we learned back on 30-something was basically, if you throw a big enough rock in the lake, all you have to do is write the ripples hmm. for the next couple of episodes. And, you know, and Emily came out, and all of a sudden, there are all these other stories that you can tell. And one of my favorite scenes is because when Ezra tells Ella and Byron, I'm having an affair with your daughter, and they're like, it's combo. They're like about four scenes in one. Every character is having their own scene. Mm. And, mm. you know, it's, it's one of the scenes where I really like Ezra because I really think he thinks it's going to be okay. <laughs> I can't explain this. <laughs> he cannot explain. So, yeah, a scene where something happens not only is great for the scene, but it's great for an ex- the echoes just go bouncing all over the cave wall mm-hmm. and you've got something to write. Mm. Interesting. It is very, it's like who knows what. And I'm always very leery when the audience gets too far ahead of the girls. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, then you're, waiting, you're just waiting. waiting. Yeah. Well, I think you described it perfectly in one of your interviews that the perfect like so, uh, moment would be for the audience to figure out only a half second before the lawyers themselves do. Right. Because then it feels much more organic. They'll, they, I think what, yeah, I think if we've done this right, I think people will figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I think they'll feel very satisfied about that. It's, yeah, I forget what, I can't remember if it's Chandler, but it's like, uh, the solution to a mystery should be completely surprising, but absolutely inevitable. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't want it to feel like a cheat when you get to the end. It should feel like, oh, of course, you know. Mm-hmm. I, you know, we're at a point now I, where people are going to say that about us regardless. <laughs> so it's like you have to start writing the train exclusively for the emotional part mm-hmm. of the show and realize that the mystery element has always been a spine mm-hmm. that's allowed us to talk about other things. But that's... So another great Chandler quote. Chandler said, a good novel and a bad novel are about entirely different things, but a good mystery and a bad mystery are about the exact same things. <laughs> it's all what you do. It's how you play the jazz. It's what notes you hit and what kind of English you can put on the ball. Mm-hmm. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about Eye of the Beholder. Uh, this is our kind of first real introduction to Vivian Darkbloom in, in the flesh, at least in the flesh, uh, by way of Arya putting on that red coat. Arya looks so much like Vivian Darkbloom. Was that intentional? Like, does this say something about Allie, maybe, that her alter ego is basically Arya? I don't know if it says something specifically about Arya as it does that we love to play with doubles and triples. Okay. Uh, And that one of the deeper uh, notes in the show is how easy it is to take on another reality, another personality, how... Maybe you're not as you as you think you are. Mm-hmm. If it's that easy to be somebody else, if it's that easy to take on another name. I mean, that's, I think, what happens to Hannah when she starts to realize that that Mona was mm-hmm. giving her the alley upgrade. It's like, mm-hmm. who, you know, it, 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 it was pretty easy mm-hmm. to turn you into her. Well, I was, I mean, it's funny you mentioned that because I was sitting down to watch uh, Can You Hear Me Now, you know, your first episode. And I, I had no questions coming out of that episode it just blew me away like how good the show was how much the show in retrospect was the show in episode four and it's an episode that's very much about like characters how they're processing change and and the concerns about other people's perception to that change 
But I guess coming out of Benji's question, so of course Allison, the 14 or 15 year old girl, is reading Nabokov. Like, how did you guys come up with the idea of bringing in Vivian Darkbloom in that specific reference? I think it it kind of organically grew. Uh, I, I was very surprised. I was surprised the network let us even reference Lolita <laughs> for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, and that she, you know, I mean, I'm a little, I don't know what a 14 year old would think reading not not a coffin. Um but I think the thing that was intriguing to me about Vivian Darkroom, unfortunately, is less about Allie taking on the name as it is the reference we're making to the fact that Vivian Darkloom was always Nabokov's character in the novel. Mm-hmm. So that it's basically if you want it's almost like us saying, you know, we are with you in this story. We are there are a group of people in a room. Mm-hmm. who are in charge of this and you better tr- and and hopefully you'll trust us uh but we're closer than you think we are <laughs> actually here she ali may have done it thinking she was being cruel i i don't know mm. ali's an interesting person <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. for a variety of reasons <laughs> yeah you you mentioned the uh the plane scene with duncan the pilot there and aria in the plane it seems like he suspects Arya, maybe. It's like he kind of puts a stick in her hand and kind of, it's like, now I can question you and you have no, nothing to hide behind. Yeah, I think that I, I, I went back and I looked at that and I think that is what he's doing. I think that one of the things the girls forget sometimes is that they are looked at suspiciously mm-hmm. and that this might very well be one of the people who caused this girl harm. And I, it's a, the whole idea about the plane thing was like, also, I just wanted to make sure I could get Annalie to town six hours ahead. Right. Okay. Of when you thought she was there, mm. uh, because that is one busy day. <laughs> that is like the vernal equinox. That day is a long day. Well, and of course, Allie would have met some pilot in a bookstore, some like teenage pilot, and recruited him to give her flying lessons. Mm-hmm. Allie collects skills. Mm, okay. Uh, not as aggressively as Mona has, but, you know, there's a samurai saying, which is basically to surpass your master is to pay the debt you owe him. <laughs> so I think that's what Mona has done. Allie's like collecting assets, like, like a spy or something. Yeah. Yeah. She has, and she, you know, I mean, we still have not really gone into any great depth about what it was like what her two years, her unaccounted two years were. Mm-hmm. You know, we know some things about certain places, mm-hmm. but we don't know much about that cafe. We don't know much about that the jazz club owner. <laughs> yeah, um, seriously. There is, there is, you know, and we we know it's there, and it's like we've just been dealing with other things, but we could go back there. Well, and by the end of season five, I think we were both very much intrigued by Cyrus and would love to see more of him. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I like the Cyrus idea. I, I like, I don't know what happened to him. I mean, the last time, you know, I, you know, I put him down and the next thing I know he's on fire. <laughs> so <laughs> whether or not, and I really, and, and Spencer kind of says it's a throwaway, but I actually think uh, Cirque did find him hmm. and hmm. that, and that Cyrus was the source of okay. the deconstruction that the DA's office was able to do. He never got to go on stand because we had to be, for a variety of reasons, just compress the trial so right. much um, mm-hmm. that it almost hurts. But I've always thought that Cyrus, they found Cyrus. Yeah, I think the DA knows everything. Um, yeah, one thing that inter- interested me in those kind of final episodes of season two, Mona, it's like she's almost taking over the girls' lives. She's like handing out phones. She's got lotion for all of them. 
it almost seems like like she might have had an end game at this point like maybe she could actually just be the fifth liar like i wonder if that was something you guys were like her character motivation it almost seems like maybe she would have given up the a game if she could have like really fit in but at the same time she was like using a to make sure that they would shut her out but here's the thing even if she thought for a moment she could have gotten to that group she would have had to have known that eventually they would have found out hmm. so i think that what you, you know particularly what you say it is like did i screw up you know mm-hmm. did i did i make the wrong choice back in the lost woods motel what what should i have done i mean i've done this and i've taken over but now maybe this is the group She's chasing after, you know, Arya and, and Allie in the, in the pilot. Mm-hmm. They just dump her. <laughs> she may have gotten to a point where she could have gotten what she wanted, but she can't get what she wants. Mm. Poor kid. So close, yeah. Is there really an old movie about a, about a blind lady who got her sight back? Yes, there is. I'm, yes, there. it's not a feature. It's a television movie. Okay. Oh. It's the, it's, uh, the two-hour uh, night gallery pilot. Oh, okay. By Rod Serling. Okay. In which in which Joan Crawford blackmails someone into into uh, g- giving her a new set of eyes, which will give her vision for twelve hours. Hmm. Unfortunately, the surgery happens on the night of the '65 New York blackout. <laughs> so nice. In in Rod Serling's universe, the the power is not gravity; it's irony. Right. All the books in the world to read. All the books in the world, all the time in the world. Now my glasses are broken. Um, so I asked, I met him once in college and I asked him, why is there, why an unhappy ending on that story? And he said, nuclear Holocaust shouldn't be good for anyone. And I took me, I don't know why he told me this. And basically, it's like, no, it shouldn't be good. It should be, but I'll take that. I'll take genocide and, and bring it down to one man who can't read. And then you'll understand. And it sticks with you. That was the beauty of Rod Serling. You talked about as a guy in a suit who stood up and introduced his stories, but he, it was like in doing so he made the weird normal yes you know? like that kind of mindset he, he really brought it to your living room and showed you that like your fears have a face something eye of the beholder and what have you but it's like his- it's like it's like what king says in the beginning in the introduction of don's macabre says is it says if this is what you're interested in come around the corner with me i have something to tell you <laughs> so you wrote two milestone scenes between hannah and jenna the time that, that hannah slaps her and then in season two when hannah saves her and sort of like makes up for it what, can you talk a little about the relationship between hannah and jenna and like why Hannah seems to hate Jenna the most at that point. Is it just because of a Caleb thing? I think she focuses on the Caleb thing because it was such a ghastly betrayal. Mm. And uh, I remember actually I had to talk people into the slap. Mm. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, and is it really? You want, she's going to slap the blind girl? And I said, I said, I think we have to do this. We have to, this, I think that's one of the moments where the show kind of claimed that Douglas Cirque territory, mm-hmm. that heightened place that we needed to have. And maybe it was wrong and maybe it was bad, but everybody knows why she did it. Mm-hmm. And then Jenna cries. Mm-hmm. So it's a complicated moment. And I don't know if saving her is the exact mate to, to the scene. The, specific maybe in the hospital later Mm -hmm. yeah yeah. and when she asks are you there and she says you came in and you saved me and jenna says why and hannah says you're welcome (laughs) and all right where's where hannah kind of it's interesting hannah has a couple of over the life of the series hannah has some strange mirrors i mean it's like you know a hits hannah with a car in in 110 but hannah gets to be the one who's late to the greenhouse Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It gets to smack him back. 
So there's, it's almost, there's the more quid pro quo in, in, in Hannah's life than there is anything else. Mm. I think they're, I think they've, they do feel responsible for what happened to Jenna. And mm. Jenna's going to play it for all it's, she's worth. She's going to play that instrument. Oh, she's the, what a wonderful flautist. <laughs> so I wanted to jump forward a little bit. You uh, developed a little bit of a reputation for your, your Paige and Emily scenes. Um, yeah. One that sticks out in my mind in Shadowplay. Paige and Emily have kind of probably their most intimate moment on the show. But it is kind of, at least theoretically, it's like taking place inside Spencer's mind. Do you kind of consider that to be Spencer's interpretation of them? Or is it kind of just like a hand wave? Like, never mind how we got here. We're watching Paige and Emily now. I think it's real. Okay. I think it represents what actually happened. Okay. Um, I think it may be it may be Spencer's filter of it, but I think that scene happened. I, it's interesting with with Paige and Emily, which I am amazed when people look at the two of them in the swimming pool and don't understand that that's postcoital. I don't know how much more I can be <laughs> on 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 basic cable, mm-hmm. but that is that's look at their faces. Mm. Um, and no, they keep saying, no, we want to see sex scenes. We want to see sex scenes. Well, I mean, it basically is, like you said, it, it is a sex scene right there. It, it is. I yeah. mean, it's, but it's interesting. They've had the most metaphorical sex scenes. I mean, it's, it's the swimming pool. It's, you know, don't look away. And, and I think something happened and then we cut back and they're in, and it's after the swimming pool. And I think, I guess the only time, I guess Shadow Play is the only time they really are that, you know, they are in bed together. The broadcast cut is about nine seconds shorter than my cut. So there's not a lot of stuff missing. Yeah, I think they're in bed and the the scene where they kind of start to break up. So when Jenna gets attacked and almost drowns in a lake, they're okay. kind of, I mean, they're sharing a bed there. It's not, they're a little chilly between them. They do. They share, they share a bed and doors are open. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting. It's like, I mean, it's like what I was good. One of the things about shadow play was that I didn't, I, I knew my resources were limited to pull it off. So we did things. I mean, that is, that's Emily's bedroom, but I pulled the psych out from outside the window. Mm-hmm. and scenic got me this cityscape thing and they warned me that because of the way the set was built it would be very difficult to get the psych far enough back for it to look realistic i said don't worry about <laughs> that just put it outside the window exactly yeah it's film noir speaking of shadow play i love the the picture of you i think it's, it's obviously behind the picture where you're posing with sasha for where she's posing for the portrait of ali like, what was it like just knowing that like you're going to have this portrait done that's going to be such a... Is it Laura? Is that the reference I'm thinking? It is, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, Laura ended up being referenced a lot more than I thought it was going to be referenced in the final episode. It's wild because uh, Sasha dressed up for the portrait was the f- first time I saw any of the characters. It had to be done first. Mm-hmm. So it's the first time I saw any of them in wardrobe and makeup. And I got the call. I said, do you want to come down? We're taking the picture for the portrait. I said, yeah, I want to come down. And I went down there and I came around a corner and I saw her looking like that. And I said, oh, thank God it's going to work. Uh, because it was, we didn't know. Yeah. That portrait now hangs on the wall outside my office. Excellent. So then she just keeps an eye on all the writers. <laughs> so how did, how did you, I mean, was this something you brought to them? Did you come to the writer's room and say, I have to do a black and white episode now? This is the most amazing thing about this is we got a uh, conference call from the network and we thought it was about something and they just said, oh, it's this and blah, blah, blah. And listen, we just were thinking and I remember the conversation because it was so odd. They said, 
we've been doing a little research and we've we've been talking to people watching the show and to millennials and we have discovered that millennials do not have a prejudice against black and white the way the previous audiences do <laughs> hmm. that they're now used to it and that they like it and the network says and we've really been looking at how the direction the show has been going photographically so the amazing thing is the next thing out of jen gerstenblatt uh at the network was would you like to do a black and white episode and I'm, I, I'm told later that the silence on our end of the phone was so thick that Jen thought we didn't like the idea. <laughs> when actually what was happening was me beating everybody out of the way to get to the telephone to say it was mine. <laughs> um, they said, would you like to do one? Because in their minds, visually, it was something they could do, we could do and it would be exploitable. Mm. And unlike a finale, it might not cost as much as a finale did. Mm. And it was just, really my great luck that my first directing slot synced up with the time. And I think basically we, it, the whole thing came together in about six weeks. Awesome. Um, and it was like, and I kept getting on the phone. So I said, we will do this, but we will do it right. You understand that we're actually going to, you know, I think frankly, the only thing that's inaccurate is that we should have changed the aspect ratio, mm -hmm. uh, the way they did in, in the artist. Um, I think the artist actually was one of the reasons we got to do it. Interesting. Okay. Uh, and then it was like, I just, I will do this, but I will do it right. And I, I became very, I, for good or ill, I became very possessive about the episode. It's, it's one of the few that was not really developed in the room. I, I kind of did it myself because I wanted to, I never wanted it to be a sketch. I didn't want it to be a collection of quotes. I wanted it to, I wanted to see what would happen if you filtered the show through the existing conventions, what, what mm -hmm. would come out the other side of the filters. And I'm exceptionally proud of it. Uh, I, I, I can't imagine. Thank you. But I mean like every, and I'm also just proud of the unit. Every single person on the crew was excited about doing it. Everybody, wardrobe, camera, post-production, uh, Mike Subiu did the music. Everyone just kind of like, it was like, it was, it came along. Uh, Lisa Cochran, our line producer, said that the, the Black Hound episode came along, among other things, at the exact right time for the crew. Because mm -hmm. it was mm -hmm. halfway through year, year four, we've been doing it. And uh, it was just a great way to get everybody excited about it. We did one day where people just, the crew just dressed up. <laughs> everybody came, you know, I, I yanked out a fedora and we all, we all just went to Warner Brothers and, and made B movies. <laughs> I, I, I do, doing that show, doing that one episode is just a confirmation of, of when I said yes, back when it was a nine episode order, mm. no way you could ever conceive of it getting to a point where its popularity would be such where the, where the network would say, no, I do want a black and white. <laughs> mm. And I mean, other shows, other shows have done it. And I said, well, look, I, you know, I just, it's, I don't want to do it like, like a Gilligan's Island episode. It says it's gotta be, it's gotta be real. Mm. And, you know, I think it looks more RKO than Warner Brothers, but I'm very, uh, <laughs> there's stuff in there. And again, as a crew, just, they were making things happen that, you know, they just got it. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I was, I was just watching it last night and it just, it works so well. Like, um, and it's, it's so neat because you get all these conversations in the episode where it's almost like metatextual, you know, you have Spencer interrogating Allie, her talking to Spencer, where they get to say things to each other they wouldn't say and kind of like, in the non-dream state of the show, 
like when Spencer tells Allie that, you know, the only thing you ever tell us is what you want us to know or the way Allie just like laughs in her face. Oh, it's, she's scary. Yeah. Sasha's scary there. Mm. Uh, at the table read when Troy and Red says, am I ever going to get a straight answer from you mm. about anything? There's a laugh line at the table read. Well, it's almost like a chance to like interrogate your own characters after four years of writing them. We, I, you know, it's like, what is, you know, what is the line between meta and mm -hmm. just uh, a kind of awareness that I think the characters have to have sometimes just so that you know that they're paying attention. Mm. I mean, I, there's a line, I didn't write it to be outside the show and, and, and a reference, but, oh, out of town being lawyers, <laughs> out of town being lawyers, uh, <laughs> is one. The one I'm thinking about is Aria and Emily and Hannah. And it's just before they're interrupted by Tanner. And it's like, don't, haven't you noticed that no one ever tells you anything, just tells right. you exactly enough. Yeah. To keep you wanting uh, more. Just enough to keep you interested. And I said, yes, that's meta, but it's also actually is their reality. So <laughs> mm -hmm. that's, it's not quite breaking the fourth wall. Can you tell us any more about Ezra's special juice blend? I think it's carrot based. <laughs> um, <laughs> Such a creepy thing for him to say that fits so well. It's just, well, listen, Ian is just so wonderfully creepy in the episode. I mean, you know, I don't think he ever saw Richard Woodmark in Kiss of Death, but it's just like, yeah, uh, I think it's carrot based. I think there's barley in it mm -hmm. and it is probably the worst thing you've ever tasted. I mean, like nothing's helping it. Probably to everyone but Arya. I'm sure Arya loves it. I guess, or else she would pretend that she does. Because yeah. it's sophisticated. Yeah. Because it's sophisticated. <laughs> uh, rewinding a little bit, how much fun were writing in the film references and the costumes to This is a Dark Ride? Oh, it, that's, you know, that's the other one where basically it was not really developed in the room. It was kind of like, I, I, I kind of ran roughshod over the thing. It, it, was, it was great fun. All of the costumes, except Paige, were mine i couldn't figure out what to do with Paige, and marlene said we'll make her marlene mm -hmm. i said okay fine the one that i knew right away because i went to the girls and i said would you be comfortable doing this uh and the one i knew right away was was shay because a year earlier we had talked about how she wanted to remake barbarella <laughs> i said well okay if i can if i can for, you know would you be interested in doing that she said yeah so mandy line went out and duplicated that and gave her a little cape which was nice mm -hmm. Yeah, that's all. That's that's all me. Again, that came about because the set was originally the train set was originally built for Chuck and they didn't know what to do with it. So we said, we'll take it. <laughs> and although we ended up rebuilding it and it was just insane, the train was about 90 feet long mm -hmm. and the whole thing was suspended on cables from the roof of the soundstage so that it would move like a train. Mm -hmm. At the time, I think it was the most expensive episode we did. Huh. I know that Lisa Cochran, our line producer, liked to come down and tell me how much over budget I was <laughs> on a daily or hourly basis. Um, but other people have gone by me on that. But again, that's that's also probably pound for pound the most specific film references. Mm -hmm. I mean, Aria writing her name on the window like Mrs. Froy and uh, Lady Vanishes. Mm -hmm. Um Emily and Paige in the compartment are really Cary Grant and even Marie Saint in North by Northwest. Mm -hmm. The corridors are supposed to have the North by Northwest feel. Spencer almost getting pitched off the train is the end of Shadow of a Doubt. So that's that's got a lot of stuff. But you don't need to know that. Right. To enjoy it. Watch it. And the body's in the ice bucket the whole time, which I'm very pleased about. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. The network got the script. They said, why is it? Because the script actually references how many times you're over the ice 
the ice chest. Mm. And the first time the network says, why is he making such a big deal? Oh, I see now. We have to see that. Because mm-hmm. you're, you're literally serving food on top of I'm it. I'm yeah. serving food on, <laughs> on the remains. I mean, but speaking of, of making a Hitchcock movie every week for Teenage Audience, like one of the things that amazed me when watching that is the way you balance all the plot lines and the characters with the celebration of the Halloween and the horror movie tropes and what have you. Uh, to me, it just screamed like proof of concept for a PLL movie. I mean... What do you think would be necessary if the show ever made that jump to the big screen? I think, you know, I mean, Mar- Marlene's thought about this. I think it would have to be something really bold. I think bold to the point where maybe it doesn't happen in Rosewood. Mm-hmm. Is that you find some other place to do it and, you know, service some event we've never done. I don't know. I don't know what a movie would look like. It's like, it's, you know, how could it be, how could it be self-contained enough that you wouldn't get to the end of it and, and feel really ticked off? Mm-hmm. Uh, what new thing could we give you? You know, because you wouldn't want to do three or you'd want to do just one. Well, if it was <laughs> successful, you'd end up doing three, but. <laughs> yeah. PLO goes to Paris. Yeah. Is it, you know, I mean, uh, you know, or maybe some haunted cave in Hawaii where they meet Vincent Price. It's a tiki cat. Uh, yeah. I just want to pitch my idea again for like a clue type uh, Free the Liars episode at an old scary mansion. We've got, well, boy, you know, if Ravenswood had been other than Ravenswood, I mean, I think, you know, the, my parts of, of Grave New World are, are mostly the house things. Hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I would love to have done something like that. We've got <laughs> Hannah in the kitchen with a crowbar. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, the Allison concept is basically Mr. Body. Yeah. Allison mm-hmm. is Mr. Body, but Mr. Body is alive and, and mm-hmm. maybe killed someone in their place. And besides uh... me a little bit, I'm a fan of your Kindle World stories, uh, especially there's the moment where Mona contemplates like the idea of slipping into Allison's skin and like wearing her and looking. The, it's the line about looking out Allison's eyes and seeing her smiling back in the mirror. I'm just curious what led you to writing these stories? I don't this, this format. When Amazon and Warner Brothers looked at the fan fiction world mm-hmm. and to their wisdom decided instead of shutting it down because it was a copyright infringement, let's figure out a way to license it so we can make some money. <laughs> I thought that was like insanely brilliant. And I part of me said, Gee, I wonder what what would it be like if if the writers did that? And you didn't want, and I didn't want to do anything that would affect, that would get people looking to this pieces for clues in the contemporary story. Mm-hmm. So I said, gee, I wonder what it would be like. It's the yellow sweater is the first one. And that was kind of like my proof of concept. I wanted to see what would that, what would that be like? Mm-hmm. And I realized what it was is that it's, it's almost for me closer to an acting exercise. Because you end up kind of getting inside the characters in, in a way that you can't when you're, when you're dramatizing them. Mm-hmm. And frankly, the second one I started almost literally when I walked off the stage after shooting Emily and Paige in bed in, in shadow play. Mm-hmm. It, it was all of a sudden like there's this period, this moving them to 64, this other time and, and playing around with it and playing around with the sixties. I said, I think I want to, let me just play with this. The Kindle worlds do respond to the fact that there's been a little less page. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my attitude, I, you know, I have a very strong attachment to the characters as, as I've been accused of having. <laughs> but I want to play with them some more. Although uh, the last one, Mona became such a force in it that I think I might want to spend some more time with her 
But again, it's like, if you think about it, it's like her, when she talks about like putting her on, that's kind of like, that's, has that always been Mona's end game? Was mm-hmm. it really supplant? Maybe. How not just to kind of call in and well, call inside. I couldn't help but think of that excerpt from your story when I watched Dollhouse and there she is literally dressed up like Allison. In a gas mask. In a gas mask. Be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Speaking of uh, Miss McCullers, what's she doing out in California? I think she's sitting on a bluff with a glass of white Zinfandel, watching the sunset and waiting for her exile to be over. <laughs> um, poor Paige. Well, um, her parents are the only ones who uh, are paying attention, apparently. <laughs> apparently, yes. Well, yeah, they said get out of town, but she went. I also figured maybe there was some sort of uh, pact, not unlike Ravenswood, where all the parents like had to agree to stay in town or something like that. It's, uh, they're, oh, God, don't totally, I, I don't know about the pacts anymore. Um, <laughs> it's like, it's interesting. It's like, I mean, like, you know, the parents were, were much more visible when the show began and the stories just evolved that they weren't. And then it became quite noticeable that they weren't. So we're trying to play that juggling act now is, is, is to, where are these people? Well, and, and I imagine it must be a little bit tough to do this kind of show where you essentially have four lead characters. And each one of those characters comes with their own kind of entourage of side characters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously you can't put them all in every episode together. So you kind of have to give a, an, a, an impression that the parents are around. Maybe they're just on the phone or something like that. Right. We have a huge cast. I, mm-hmm. I look up at the uh, both. The writer's room has everybody up on the walls just so we can refer to them in case we ever forget. <laughs> and it's a, it's a huge cast. <laughs> well, I think we've always heard that one of our favorite moments, I think it's in 502, is uh, when Veronica has like Ella and Ashley on, on conference call or on the other lines. And it was like, oh, that's right. There are mother moms. They are concerned. They just can't be in this episode because it costs too much. Yes. Some of, the, some of the Zen and the craft comes from we have to do it this way. Mm-hmm. And and we we you know we have to be on this set we have to be on this stage and we have to do this in seven days or this is an episode we have to do in six and a half mm-hmm. um, that we do it that that the show looks as good as it does uh, is is a credit to how it's produced and everybody involved that well everyone's still interested mm-hmm. yeah I know one of Marco and I's uh, characters little tertiary characters that really really enjoyed was uh, Miles Corwin the PI who Spencer hires and dead to me My, yes. Well, is that Why guy are you fascinated by Miles Corwin? I don't know. I, maybe it was the actor. Like, when, I guess we, our own headcanon, I think we we decided that he must be on like the Hastings retainer, right? Doing whatever they've done. Him. Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to remember. Is that? I'm trying to remember if he is or uh, if he is the PI that they abused. I thought for a while we said he was. Hmm? I can't remember. I think I think it might have. I think at one point we see a business card of the PI that Peter hired and it wasn't, but if you figure the Hastings probably, they go to PIs a lot. Well, he's named after Sam Spade's partner and the actor who played Sam Spade's partner yeah. in Maltese Falcon. Hmm. Spade and Archer. Okay. Huh. I guess it's, it's of the dark recesses that Spencer, Spencer finds in what we call lovingly the dark Spencer saga at the end of season three there. Like, he offers her, I mean, she is trying to like shed all aspects of her humanity. And even he has to tell her, you know, I've, I've hunted down lots of people, all of them bad, terrible people. Not a single one of them ever spent 60 bucks on hydrangeas. <laughs> Spencer is, you know, Spencer, uh, Spencer, who basically could not be as dark if it wasn't for Troyan's ability to go mm-hmm. where, where a lot of sane people wouldn't go. But there's, you know, 
Hannah says it or Arya says it about Spencer in when she's in Radley is like basically there's a there's a downside to being too smart. Mm-hmm. Your your head's Hannah, working yeah. your head's working too hard. Yeah. Poor Spencer. I mean that's what's so much really fun. It's 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 great to write her in distress mm. because there's always part of Spencer that's watching Spencer. Well you kind of get the impression that her every day of her life is slightly worse than the day before in some ways, you know. She may have noticed that. Uh <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's a neat contrast to someone like Hannah. Hannah seems like she's really grown, whereas like Spencer, especially, it's like it just keeps getting worse. I mean, like, it's interesting to watch all their, they've all changed and they've all grown. I mean, Hannah, I think, really is just starting Mm. to be her own person because she's starting to realize who she was originally. But she's again, you know, was I that person? Am I this person? I've wanted to, I've started to give, I know it was a, it was almost an arbitrary thing was basically just, let's, let's give, uh, let's give Arya some more mystery. Let's show her figuring out some things. Mm. She's really good at it. Yeah, she's good. What she wants to be. Yeah. And she, but she has been, she has been getting in there. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, I'm very pleased with when they're all standing in, 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 in Mona's bedroom and Arya's the one that says, how would you get someone not to search a room? <laughs> um, by lying to them about it. And, and Shay, uh, Emily is, is kind of Spencer 2.0. Right. Oh, believe me, we agree. Oh. <laughs> we have okay. a whole theory about that. <laughs> Speaking of Hannah, in Oh, What Hard Luck Stories They All Hand Me, which is a wonderful title, um, she kind of finally lays a smackdown on the inappropriate adult male of Rosewood. Yep. Can you talk a little about that scene? I mean, it's kind of an awesome scene. I don't even know. I'm not sure what, what question to ask, but I know it's, it's a, a fan where... favorite. Where your audience, yeah, they stand up and cheer wherever they are. They're watching in their, their, their living room or they're watching on their phone. I think people got up and cheered on with her. I think it's because it's, and a large part of it is because it's like, it's about time somebody said this out loud. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, you know, and again, it's like, there's, where's that place between what would appear to be a meta communication with the audience and what is actually the fact that they're, they're aware of the reality they're in. Mm-hmm. And it has just had it i mean this is a ghastly confrontation with this guy and fortunately she has a tire iron um (laughs) and you know just you don't get to do this it's somebody should have done it to ian Mm -hmm. well maybe they did they did i think think someone did that's implied in pushing him off the bell tower Mm. you don't get to do this have we uh have we seen the last of holberg i don't know i think yeah i i don't have any plans Hmm. Okay. Okay. Side real quick. Do you have a particularly favorite version of Bye Bye Blackbird? You know, I don't. I just love the lyric. Okay. I mean, there's a great Josephine Baker version of it, which is which is great. It's just that how do you not love a line? No one here can love or understand me. Yeah. You know, and then of course in the second half, I said, "Well, let's go for the next line." <sighs> is there one character you're thinking of for the uh, "No one here can love or understand me"? Is that Make you, is it like is that intended to be a certain character like Spencer or Melissa or first person I hear saying it when you say it like that is Mona. Oh, okay. The second person I hear saying it is Allie. It's funny is is you know the nature of of how news about future episodes trickles out like what people tweet or what have you. I remember hearing like oh season five that that episode's going to be where we finally find out Melissa's secret. Also the episode is called no one here can love or understand me. And I thought, oh my God, what a perfect like synergy of a title <laughs> and a character and a sentiment. And I just had to, I almost had to go like lay down and just contemplate. Oh, well, <laughs> a cold compress. Basically yeah. Like what is uh, Melissa, what is going to happen here? 
But going the other way, so where did you come up with the idea for, for Johnny's uh, secret whisper machine? Well, hopefully I won't get any copyright problems. Okay. Um, <laughs> it, I saw it. Uh, Laurie Anderson built one, performance artist and, and, and composer. Uh, and I saw it in a museum installation um, a million years ago. Hers was not live. Hers was that you would hear a recording of her mm-hmm. talking the story. But the amazing thing about it was that hers was a larger table, and it was two people. Hmm. So the whole idea was you would get two, two people would sit down it, and they'd put their elbows on it, and they'd cover their ears, and they'd look down so that they were having one experience of listening to a tape that was being played. But anyone outside looking, just were, they were looking at a Samuel Beckett play trying to start. <laughs> just two people at a table. Right. And I just liked it, and I figured I could build it quickly, and it would be annoying for Spencer, <laughs> that she wouldn't know what it is, right. and she would desperately want to know what it is. My original concept was that it would be a plastic cube. Fred Anders, the art director, came up with making that round globe, mm. which I liked because it inadvertently was a callback to the telephone booths in Truffaut's Fahrenheit 451, mm. which I believe actually were repurposed in an episode of The Prisoner. Oh, perfect where he listens to Anvil and a Hammer, or Hammer into Anvil. Yeah. And he listens to different recordings. I think it's the same piece of plastic. It would have been right, it would have been Pinewood at the, in the 60s. I want to, like, whisper into your ear to get on your bucket list to have uh, Aria chased by a weather balloon before the show ends. <laughs> I don't know how far I can go with this stuff. Uh, we're, so, we're so close. I mean, right. and again, it's like, I actually, the one I would do, would, I'd try to figure out a way to do the, the girl who was deaf, try yes. to do that one. Yes, that's that's actually my favorite episode because it's it's such the show. It's such Danger Man, but yeah. it's such a fun, bizarre romp that you never expect. And I realized when I went back and I looked at Dance of Death, there's some wonderful things in there. Yeah. That's just, but now, I mean, like when I discovered the fact that we are inadvertently doing the prisoner, kind of like the village just took on new, mm-hmm. takes on new meaning to me. And again, I don't think a lot of people on the show know it. Right. So uh, Mona had that list of movies she gave to Mike for stuff she wanted him to watch. Any other ones on there besides them? Oh, I think, gosh, what else would be on that list? Um, wow, I wish I'd thought about this one. Actually, I'm surprised somebody hasn't asked me for this list. Um, Persona. Interesting. The Silence? Maybe. I mean, I'd put it on mine. Okay. Um, Juliet of the Spirits. If she's smart, she put the narrow margin on there. Maybe Laura. Trying to think of good American films she would have put on there. She might have put the haunting on there just to creep him out. And just to end vanishing point, just to go for the boy of mm-hmm. it all. Mm-hmm. It's a little filmic education for Mike from yeah. Mona. Little filmic education. Actually, Mike says something very nice about Mona. So that she remembers everything. The Mona is the girl who remembers everything in a movie she sees. So uh, we know that you're doing 602 and 603. Uh, you wrote both of those. Are you directing any episodes coming up in the next season? Yeah, I get to direct one in the, in 6B. Okay. Uh, probably about halfway. It's like a usual slot for me, like around it's 6.15 or 6.16. Okay. Is there anything in particular that kind of like, like are there some scripts where you're just like, I have to direct this? Like, what? how does that come into play Like when you actually do the directing too? Well, it's weird. Since the first one I directed was Shadow Play, I almost don't have anything else to prove. <laughs> So I can have an experience of saying, oh, well, what what do I have to do here? And what's the best way to do this particular episode? And how do I move the ball here? I don't have to prove anything because I don't think I can top it. Mm. 
So, you know, but I'd still like to come up with, you know, the next one I'd like to come up with something that might have some kind of unexpected hook in it, but I'm never going to, you know, again, I got to do shadow play. I could just basically retire and <laughs> rest on my laurels and because of just, you know, it was, it was just a, such an amazing experience. And now it's just, let's do really good episodes. But again, it's like, I guess I'm kind of leaning more towards like, I, I use longer shots. I, I write longer scenes than the other writers do just because I like them. Mm-hmm. I like mm-hmm. doing, I like doing scenes that, that have more going on in them than, than one thing at a time. Yeah. I was noticing in, uh, 518, the, oh, hard luck stories they'll hand me. The, the first scene, there's a lot of long shots of the liars all looking all the way across the, the town square over at Holbrook and Veronica. It's very interesting kind of like putting this in their perspective, kind of just witnessing things from afar and getting the, kind of the liars interpreting what's going on there. I like, you know, I like doing stuff like that because I think there's a lot of things you don't actually have to see or hear. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, Veronica talks to Holbrook and you don't hear what they say. It's you don't have to. It's just something wrong is going on. Well, and he has this like messed up hair and his weird body language. Kind of... He has not had a good time and he's been called in and he's about to throw things into a box. Well, it's, <laughs> it's the opposite of the convenient eavesdropping. It's the uh, inconvenient seeing from afar and trying to ascertain what this means. Yeah, which happens more often than actually hearing what you need to hear. Mm-hmm. I usually say, so I, I really don't think we should be hiding behind a portiere's here. It's, you know, I mean, it happens in Hamlet, but that doesn't mean you have to do it every week. So I'm just curious. So we're, we're recording this at the end of April. Where are you in the episode breaking process? Like in the right. Um, pretty far along. We are, Brian is doing the outline for eight hmm. this weekend. Oliver will write nine. Marlene is writing the finale, which is 10 since we're doing 20 episodes this year. And she's pretty well along with that. And I'm just kind of trying to figure out what the handoff is going to be because I'm going to write the first one after the time jump, okay. which I'm awesome. looking forward to. I like, I, I've done most of the ones when we come back mm-hmm. from the season split. And it's a position I like. Since moments later, I've, I've liked that place. It's, you know, I've, you know, I've, I got to do moments later. And then the next one was tr- through many troubles, toils and snares. And I like a lot of that episode. Mm. And now it's extra special. It's almost like another pilot. Since we're just going to, we're going to reinvent the world. Cool. Can't wait to see it. All right. Well, I really want to thank you for uh, taking all this time on a Sunday. This is fascinating, fascinating conversation. I got lots of other stuff too. We could <laughs> do it again. Anything you want. We'll gladly, gladly take you up on that. Yeah, we should, we should do another one later, maybe after, after six or two. No, mm-hmm. I mean, and uh, I'll just, I'll, I'll echo what Brian and and, and Norman has said is that, uh, is that it's really very satisfying to us when we realize somebody notices what we're doing, and uh, it makes it, it makes it worth the effort. That's why we greatly appreciate what you guys do. Likewise, awesome. Well, really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you.